For all of you joining us online, we're so glad to have you worshiping with us. We want to apologize for last week. We had technical difficulty and our live stream wasn't up last week, but we're so glad to have you worshiping with us wherever you are joining us from today as well. Uh, on a scale of observant to oblivious, where would you put yourself? Right, who would consider yourself, on a scale of observant to oblivious, who would think that I'm a pretty observant person, right? Anybody? Where's all the oblivious people? Who lives with a bunch of oblivious people? I mean, who lives with people? Like, I, I tell you, I kid you not, I am going crazy at my house right now because it seems like everyone in my house, besides my wife and I, leave the pantry door open and the light on every time they go in there. I'm forever turning the light. I'm actually going out this week to buy a motion sensor switch to put in that room because I'm going crazy, right? How do we know that sometimes we can be selectively oblivious? Anyone ever selectively oblivious? Right? There's just some things that you don't want to see. And so, right, right, all the men, right, when you go downstairs, there's a pile of stuff that needs to go downstairs. But uh, how many know we just don't see it? Right? And your wife's like, why didn't you take it with you? And you're like, I just didn't see it. And I'm not even lying. <laughs> Here's the thing. There's some things, though, that just seem to catch your eye. Any car guys, car girls in the house, that just like cars catch your eye, right? You just are into cars. To be honest, I'm not much of a car guy, you know, but my father-in-law, he's always, look at that car, and he'll tell you what year it is, just based on a glance, right? For some of you, you're more into fashion, whether it's shoes or watches or purses, you just notice what people are wearing or, or what they're having. Uh, some of you are sneaker heads, you know, you are always looking at what people are wearing on their feet. Uh, any dog people? You're just noticing the dogs, right? And you got to pet all the dogs and all the dogs at the park get a pet, you know, because they just notice them while the rest of us just are oblivious to the dogs, right? It's just like whatever it is that reaches out and grabs your attention, we're drawn to see the things that we're passionate about and interested in. Now, uh, researchers have talked about this condition. They've identified a condition called selective attention bias, or they also call it frequency illusion. And this is what it is. It's like when you go to buy a new car and you start driving your car, what do you start to notice? You notice that car everywhere. All of a sudden, wow, there's so many of these cars now that I have one of these cars, right? And so you didn't notice it before, but now you have this frequency illusion to start seeing more of what you're looking for. You see more of what you're looking for. Would you say, I see more of what I'm looking for. Now, inversely, there's another phenomenon that things that are around us, surrounding us every day, we become accustomed to them, and our attention span, instead of bringing them to the foreground, it pushes them to the background. You ever notice that, right? A couple weeks ago, my family and I, we were traveling, and so it was right in the middle of that giant wildfire in Kelowna, right in the peak of the, the days uh, smoke was filling the valley, and it had been a couple days uh, living like that, and uh, we were driving to Vancouver, and we were at Vancouver, and we had a couple hours that we needed to be uh, at an at a office space that we were at, and uh, we were out of the car. For this couple hours after having lived in this wildfire environment for a few days. And uh, we were in the fresh Vancouver air. Anyone love the coastal air? Fresh Vancouver air. And uh, we were there and we got back in the car. 
And how many knows, we had driven all the way from Penticton to Vancouver, never noticed a thing. But after having been out of the car for those four or five hours, we got back in the car and we could just smell the smoke in our car, right? We had become habituated. Right? Habituation is another phenomenon where the things that we are surrounded by, we adapt to and our awareness fades. It's like when you move into a new house. And that very first night, you're aware of all the creaking, right? All like the sounds around you, but you become habituated to it. When I was a kid, we used to go to a, a, a church camp and the, the cabins, the boys' cabins, were right alongside of the railway track. And every night, the train would come through. And so for the first two or three nights, you would be up in the night because the train would come through about two or three in the morning. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why they put the men's cabins, right, the boys' cabins beside the train tracks. But, but how many know by week seven, or by night seven, you know, after being at camp all week, you were exhausted, you were sunburnt, you were tired, and uh, you had just become habituated that you didn't even wake up anymore for the train, didn't even hear it. Your high awareness to what was new had grown to be accustomed to it. So we have these two conditions. We have this condition is where you see more of what you're looking for. And at the same time, you become conditioned to your current conditions. It's fascinating how this works together. Anybody know what a QWERTY keyboard is? QWERTY keyboard. If you use a computer, you most likely use a QWERTY keyboard. If you have a phone of any type these days. Remember back in the day when all your phone had was like the number keys and you had, it was called T9. Remember, do you remember what a T9 is? I know anyone under like 20 doesn't know what this is. But, but back in the day, to get like the letter C, you had to press the number one three times. It was a one ABC. You had to, to get, you know, to the C. And you had to like spell out all the words by pressing all the, the numbers multiple times. And if you like passed your number... You had to like go back until you got to it again. And thankfully, eventually, they just put a keyboard on all of our phones. But here's the QWERTY keyboard. If you didn't know, the QWERTY just stands for the five letters in the top uh, left corner. And uh, the QWERTY keyboard uh, is a piece of technology. Most of the time, technology is to make our lives better, to improve our lives, right? Did you know that your keyboard was actually designed to make your life worse? It was actually designed to slow you down in your typing. See, back in the, uh, the late 1800s, when people were using typewriters, what they found is that if keys uh, were used, remember you used to have like the like, and they found that you had letters that were close together that the, that the, the hammers would get stuck. And so what they did is they tried to spread the letters around the keyboard. And what they actually did is they used common letters, the most commonly used ones. They put them on the left side of the board because most people are right-handed. And so they would make you type. So they're basically trying to slow the typist down. Now, all you people that do the hunt and peck typing, right? They were thinking of you, right? You're the ideal typist, right? But they were trying to slow you down. They were trying to get you using your left hand and trying to slow down so that the hammers wouldn't hit. Well, we know that technology has improved uh, since then and you're not really worried about uh, hammers on the typewriter anymore. And so you would think that we would adapt to a, a new and improved keyboard uh, that would speed up our process. They've actually found that there, there is a couple other versions of the keyboard with uh, keys in different spot, uh, spaces. And it says that it improves efficiency by 95%. Imagine that, you could have a 95% more efficient keyboard. But here's what everybody was thinking at the time. 
Everybody's already adapted to QWERTY, right? Why change something now? And so we kind of live in this society where they're like, the computers are all set up this way. All those typing classes you took in the 50s and 60s, they taught you how to do it, you know, and now, you know, kids just like tell Siri to do it anyways. And so, you know, you don't need to, do, to type anymore. And so we've just said, you know what? Why change? If it's working, why fix it? You know, and so we have QWERTY keyboards that are way less efficient, but we've just kind of got stuck thinking, well, that's, it is what it is, and let's just uh, leave it alone. How many know sometimes that the way that we look at what is can keep us from seeing what could be? Right? Sometimes when we look at what is, it can keep us from seeing what could be. You know, the way things have always been is the way they'll always be. Why change it now? We've adapted to it. We've become habituated to it. The way we look at people or problems and situations around us, they can limit our ability to see the potential within those people, those problems, and those situations. No, it's not that we don't see problems, right? How many know that a lot of us are really good at seeing problems, right? But what we don't see is the potential within the problem to the, the possibility within the problem. You know, it's often easier for to focus on our limitations than it is to see our potential. It's often easier for us to focus on our dysfunctions rather than celebrate our strengths. You know, we can look at the brokenness around us in this world and that can become the predominant storyline of our lives and, and yet we can still choose to see the beauty of the humanity uh, that we live in. You know, sometimes what we need is someone who sees things from a different perspective. Someone who thinks outside the box. Someone who, who brings a, a different worldview or a set of experiences along to help you see things differently. How many remember the day when a minivan had one door on the right-hand side? Right? Anyone remember those doors? And you would get in and you have to get in the minivan and you kind of get on the front bench and you have to kind of do the, the shuffle, you know, over across, Right? Until someone one day said, cars have doors on both sides. Why not add a door to the other side of the minivan, right? And now you can get in on both sides, right? It just took someone to go, hey, why don't we look at this differently? Let's look at it differently. Well, last week we kicked off this new series and sermon uh, and life group series that we're calling Life Shared. And the tagline that we had for it was everyone, everywhere. Everyone say that with me. Would you say everyone, Everywhere. See, we want everyone everywhere in our city to experience the love of Jesus. We want everyone everywhere in our region to experience the grace of Christ. And how many know there's a difference between wanting something and dreaming about something? Right? There's a, there's a difference between wanting to see something happen and seeing it actually take place. Last week we said a vision without a plan is a fantasy. And a plan without action is a speech. And what we said last week is that we don't want to be a church that lives in fantasy. And we don't want to be a church that just gives speeches. We want to have a plan and we want to put action to that plan. See, we believe Romans 1.16 is true. It says, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. We believe that's true. If you believe that, say Amen. But we also believe that Romans 10, 14 is true. And it says this, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone 
tells them, if you believe that's true, say amen. amen. See, we felt like God to put it on our heart as a leadership team this year to start our fall semester by kicking off this series of equipping our people and inspiring our people to reach out, to get into action, to tell the people we love and care about, about this Jesus that we love and care about. Everyone, everywhere, we said last week, starts with someone, somewhere. We can look at the big picture and say, that's a great vision, that's a great plan, that's a great dream, but how many know when we put action to it, everyone, everywhere starts with someone, somewhere. And so we want to talk about that today. In Acts chapter 3, we're going to look there, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And this is an encounter between a man who is living life in the routine of what has always been, and some men who had learned to see differently, who had had some life experiences that had challenged and changed their perspective. Acts chapter three. Now Acts is a really interesting book in the New Testament, written by Luke, and it's a sequel to Luke's self-titled gospel, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, they go together. In Acts chapter one, Luke tells us explicitly what he had meant in writing his first book, the Gospel of Luke. In Acts 1.1, he says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach. He said, in my last book, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to encapsulate everything Jesus did and he taught. I wanted you to have an eyewitness account, a reliable account about who Jesus was and is. And now here in Acts, this is the follow-up book. And so he shifts focus from what Jesus did and taught to now the activities or the acts of the church. The, now that Jesus has handed off this mission, uh, what did it look like? What did the church begin to do? And so the book of Acts is primarily stories of the early church as they were getting established, as they experienced an incredible paradigm shift that took place in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives. And there's no question. There's no question that what inspired that incredible shift there's no question about what took these ordinary people and transformed them into this movement that, that took the message and gospel of Jesus around the world. Uh, there's no questioning it. Uh, it's the, the, it was the result of the Holy Spirit at work. Jesus himself said that would be the result. Jesus says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How many know that the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is to every believer and to prepare them for partnership in the mission of God? See, Jesus' plan is that everyone everywhere would hear the good news about Christ and that it would start with someone somewhere being filled with the Holy Spirit and with the boldness and the courage and the power to witness. See, the story of Acts is that the work Jesus began continued through the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the plan of God in the book of Acts, and that's the plan of God today. That the work Jesus began is continued through the church. And by the church, I don't mean an organization. I don't mean Bethel specifically. I mean the people of God who make up the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
This is why Jesus told his disciples to go and wait the Holy Spirit. Where he said, I'm returning to the Father, but go and wait, and I will send one who will come, and he will lead you in all truth. He will empower you. He will, uh, he will give you what you need for the mission I have tasked you with. And so not only did they have the power to witness, but they began to have this, this paradigm shift in how they saw their lives and how they saw the people and the world around them. Acts 2 starts telling the story of this transformation. We see how these people have this paradigm shift that there's an increase in how much time they spent together. And this is how I know that our church is like on the same track. We're on a good place because said they spent lots of time hanging out and eating together. That's what it says in the book of Acts. This is how we know they were transformed by the Holy Spirit. They love to hang out and they love to have dinner, right? And so that's one of the key components of being a disciple of Jesus, hanging out, eating together. How many could sign up for that? Sign me up, Jesus, right? They spent time eating, worshiping together. It says there's an incredible increase in generosity towards those who were in need. Not only were they looking out for their lives, but they were looking out for those around us and then it says, each day the Lord is adding to their group people who were being saved. Each day God was adding to their group. Isn't that an incredible thing? How many would love to see that here in our city, in our region? You know, as we are so thankful for what God has been doing in our church, as we go to two services, part of that vision is saying, God, we just want to make room for the people that are not yet in the room. We think that as we go and as we live this out as individuals each and every day that you're going to continue to add to the church people who are being saved. The reason they saw things differently is that they saw themselves differently. They saw the people around them differently. They saw their purpose differently. No longer were they living just for myself. They were beginning to live for the mission and the purpose and the cause of Christ. And so that brings us to Acts chapter 3. And this is the first miracle documented after Christ's ascension to heaven. Acts 3, verse 1. It says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. And as they approached the temple, a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. Each day he was put inside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so that he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Now, in the earliest days, Christianity and Judaism were really closely entwined. In these days, the, the devout Jews would go to the temple or the synagogue uh, regularly, and they would go to worship and to read the scriptures, and the scriptures being the Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And they would read the Old Testament prophets who would be talking about this coming Messiah, the one who would come and restore the nation of Israel, the one who would come and restore all things to God's order. And so they had worship in, with this view in mind of, of what is to come? What is this going to look like? Who's it going to be? And there has this kind of forward-looking worship. But what we see is that as Christians, who were primarily Jews, who had come to put their faith that Jesus was the Messiah, they were coming also to the temple and synagogue to worship. But in, that, in, that, in the midst of that worship service, they had this different perspective that, that these Old Testament prophets had already been fulfilled. And so while some of them were thinking about what is to come, some of them were in the midst of the service going, this has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And so they were devout Jewish followers. But uh, as the message began to expand, it says that Gentiles or non-Jewish people began to join the family of God. They began to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they didn't have temple or synagogue worship as part of their heritage and background. And so they began to gather and Christianity became decentralized from the synagogue and temple. And it says that they began to meet in homes to worship. And these churches were established all across the region and what we see is that as the Holy Spirit filled these people no longer did they need to go to the temple to meet with God but as the Holy Spirit indwells the followers of Jesus that you become the temple of God God says that I will come and I will make my home in you Instead of going to a destination to meet with God it says that the presence of God goes with you wherever you go See, in the, in the Jewish thinking, the, the temple was the intersection of heaven and earth. That you would go to the temple to meet with God, and now that God has made his home in us, that we are the temple, wherever we go is an intersection of heaven and earth. We don't need to go to a destination. You don't need to go to a specific preacher or pastor or anything like that. Where you are is the intersection of heaven and earth. Where you go in your workplace, in your school. People can meet with God. The intersection of heaven and earth is where you are. And so Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. I, I love just two verses earlier in Acts 2.46. It says that they worship together at the temple each day. How many know that worship isn't a weekly thing? How many know it's not a monthly thing for some of us, right? Statistically, they say that a regular attender at church in North America is once a month. Uh, I know most of you are more than that. But, but worship isn't a weekly thing. It's a daily thing. And so they were going to the temple because that was the intersection. But how many know you don't need to go to the temple every day? We'll open up the doors for you if you want to come every day. You can come worship during office hours, you know. But each day they were worshiping. And here's the thing. It was a daily discipline in their lives to worship and to connect with God. We're about to read about an extraordinary event. But this extraordinary event was just really wrapped up in a really ordinary moment. I don't think they got up that morning thinking, I think God's gonna do something extraordinary today. They just got up and said, well, what is our routine? Let's go to the temple to pray. Three o'clock, they were on their way. Here's what we need to know, the seed for the miraculous the seed for divine encounters, the seed for supernatural moments is sown in daily routine. If you want to encounter God, you need to make space to hear from God on a daily basis. Some of us think that, well, I'm just going to wait here. If God wants to speak, he knows where to find me. And God does do that in his grace sometimes. But more often what i found, and we've talked about this, is that when I create margin in my life, when I make space for God, he comes and fills it. When I make space in my time, I said, God, I'm setting aside some time. God can speak to me all day, and he does. But when I set aside time, he comes and fills it. For some of us, we gotta make that a habit, a discipline. It's not that God comes and we have this divine encounter every day, but sometimes it's just the still small moments that God encourages us, speaks to us. So the seed for the miraculous is sown in daily routines. The miraculous is often wrapped up in the mundane. Sometimes God moments don't even seem like God moments in the moment. So when we look back on it and we think, oh, I totally think that was God having his fingerprints all over that. 
that divine appointment, that divine whatever it is, didn't seem like it in the moment. It's not like the heavens part every day. You know when I'm writing my sermon and people are like, oh, that really spoke to me, Pastor Jeremy. You must have heard from God. And I was like, to be honest with you, on Tuesday, I was like, God, give me something. You know, and then I started typing, right? It's not like my office is like, oh, you know, Pastor Ralph comes in and I got a halo on above my head. I'm writing my sermon. God's speaking through me, right? It's not like that. The miraculous often takes place in the mundane. And we just give God those moments and we look back on it and we say, thank you, God, for what you did. So we find Jesus' followers on what looks like an ordinary day going about their regular routine. They're in the usual place, surrounded by the usual people. I'm sure they must have passed this beggar dozens of times before. Scripture says that this was his daily routine, that each day he would be brought to the temple gate. It was a good place to be because for Jews, uh, their, their worship really revolved around devoteness and worship and giving alms to, to the poor. And so it was just a good place to be. So everyone had seen the man. I'm sure that they'd seen him in, you know, with different lenses. Maybe they saw him in his disability. Maybe they saw him in his need. Maybe some people saw him as a nuisance. You know, whatever. Maybe some people had just stopped seeing him. You know, he was just part of the regular background and scenery of their trip to the temple. And on this day, I don't know what was different. But we see Peter and John approaching the temple when he calls out to them. And he asks them for help. But something stirs differently within the disciples on this day. Verse 4 says this, Peter and John looked at him intently. And Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at him eagerly expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you. But what I'll give you is what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. And then Peter took the lame man by his right hand and helped him up. See, even though it was an ordinary day and he was in the middle of his ordinary routine and even though it would have been easy for Peter and John to be conditioned by their current conditions and just pass on by, they actually saw something more. See, we said you see more of what you're looking for. And in this day, they saw something more. They saw what they were looking for. They saw a need that God wanted to meet. I think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, in the book of Acts, just a chapter before, we saw that Peter had been involved on the day of Pentecost in preaching. It says 3,000 people gathered that day and, and crowds of people were coming to Christ. Crowds of people were saying, yes, we believe what you're saying about Jesus. How many know that the church would have been like on fire, right? You know, we get excited counting down for church to start. How many know there would be a little bit of a buzz, you know, in the church where they, wow, there's a big movement of God. There's a lot of momentum happening. How many know when there's a lot of movement and there's a crowd, it's easy to get swept up in the crowd and in the movement and the energy of the crowd. But what I see is significant here, that in the midst of God doing something great in the crowd, in the midst of God doing a real move of God, that he still highlights the individual. That God still sees the individual. That Peter, he, he's talking to the masses and he could have got caught up in the momentum of the masses and yet God points to him the need of an individual. How do you know as a church, we want to see Individuals. You know, we, we don't want to just have a crowd and be like, well, the momentum of church is good and, you know, the crowds of people just come every week and it's really good. How many know we need, it always is about individuals. 
You know, even in our church today, we, we have a great crowd of people, but I want you to know today that God sees you. That we've been praying for you. That God knows what you need and he hears your prayers and he wants to minister to you today. So Peter sees this hurting man in need of a touch from Jesus. And he had the awareness to stop in a moment where God wanted to meet to an individual. As a pastor and as a leader of this church, my goal is not to build a great church. I mean, I wanna have a great church. I think we can do things that create a great church culture, but our goal isn't to build a great church. I love what Mike Breen says. He says, if you make disciples, you will always get the church. But if you make a church, you rarely get disciples. What he's talking about is when we're trying to build an organization or we're trying to build a culture or we're trying to minister to a crowd, you won't necessarily get a church, you'll get a crowd. But if you're focused on individuals and making disciples and meeting the needs and, and seeing them one-on-one -on -one as we do that more and more, we will get a church, a church of Disciples, maybe this chart will help you uh, picture better what he's talking about. And on this chart, you can sort of see these two accesses. And the first axis is this axis of invitation. And where you have high invitation and low invitation into relationship. And then you have this other axis of a challenge, a low challenge and a high challenge. How do you know if you're trying to build a church, you need to have people? And the way to have people is to create a great culture. It's to make people comfortable, to let them know they're invited. And so on this first graph, we, we have a high level of invitation. Yeah, come to our church. You'll be loved and you'll be cared for. You are welcomed and accepted. But what happens is though, if we have a low challenge, what we do is we create a church with a cozy culture. It's nice to go there. I feel good there. I, I, I like it. The atmosphere is good. They sing the music that I like, and like the people are really nice. And it's just a great, I just leave there feeling better about myself, right? And what also happens is you create consumers. I go to the place where I'm comfortable and that, where they meet my needs. But what happens, though, is that you, you don't create a disciple, you create a consumer, you create a spectator. That's the church that I go to and I just sit on the fringe where they meet my needs. But what we see with Jesus is that he invites people a high level of challenge. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. But he also has this high level of challenge. The high level of challenge is come to me, anyone, but go and sin no more. He says, come to me, all who are thirsty, you'll never be thirsty again. But now I'm equipping you with power to be my witnesses. There's a high level of challenge. This high level of challenge is like, yeah, we're not here to spectate. We're not here just to go to a place where we feel comfortable and to where we feel accepted. We're actually being challenged to become the children of God and to live out the holiness and righteousness of God. We have this high level of challenge and that's what produces disciples. That is what produces a church that is moving in the things of God. This is where Jesus operated. Jesus didn't just say, come to me and then stay as you are. He said, come to me 
and begin to walk in the fullness and the power and the equipping of the Holy Spirit to be. Inversely, we have a couple other challenges. If you have low challenge and low invitation, uh, you know, it's just really apathetic culture. And if you have a low invitation and a high challenge, it's really discouraging, right? Like I'm being challenged to things, but no relationship there. But we want to live in this, in this realm of high invitation, but also high challenge. We want to live in this place where, yes, we want you to come to our church. We want you to enjoy the coffee and to feel comfortable. But we make no bones about that. The reason that we're here is because we're following Jesus and his teachings. We're shaping our life around his teaching. We're allowing him to shape us and to challenge us in this place. This is where we're going to have disciples, not consumers or spectators. Now, a few years ago, I uh, took a course and I was getting my license to drive a school bus. I was a youth pastor and as the youth group was growing, I needed more space. So uh, I, uh, I had to get my school bus license. And as we were learning to drive, we were doing road tests and doing all this stuff. And when we came to a railway crossing, have you ever noticed that the school bus always stops at the railway crossing? Right? You probably don't stop at the railway crossing, but the school bus always stops at the railway crossing. Not only does it stop, but it opens its doors and looks down the track, and what they were teaching us was stop, look, and listen, right? Maybe if you have kids, you talk to them about the intersection, stop, look, and listen. And, and I see that happening here. I see that these disciples, they had to stop. How many times have they passed by the same place, the same person, doing the same thing, but on this day, they stopped, for some of us, we could learn from this. Some of us, we need to loosen up our schedule a little bit to make more room to stop. As I was feeling convicted about this personally, I was thinking there's some things that I need to stop. One of those things is I need to stop scrolling so much on my phone. How many know that I'm hardly ever waiting anymore? Right? You used to go to a waiting room and you would wait. Wait to see the doctor, wait to see the dentist. Now I go to the waiting room and I just am scrolling. Right? Anyone like that? Maybe you drop your wife off at the grocery store. She just has to get a couple things. A couple things, right? And so you're sitting there going, how long does it take to get a couple things, right? And so, but it's no worries anymore because now I have something to do while I'm waiting. I'm scrolling. But how many know while I'm scrolling, my head's down, right? When I'm scrolling, I'm oblivious to what's going on around me. When I'm in the waiting room, I'm oblivious to what's happening. When I'm waiting for, pick up my kids from dance or whatever it is, I, I got my head down, I'm waiting. How many know some of us, we need to stop we need to stop scrolling so that we can get our heads up. When we get our heads up, we'll begin to see what is happening around us. Right? I'm not saying that scrolling's bad, you know, Flappy Bird and all those games, whatever you're playing these days, whatever, it's all fun. But it has to come a point where we put our heads up. If we're going to be engaged in what Jesus has called us to, we've got to get our heads up. We need to stop. And then it says Peter and John looked at him and said, we've got to stop and we've got to look. We got to look. When they stopped, their heads were up and they were seeing what was going on around them in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense. They were praying, God, by your spirit, would you show me what's happening around me? Not just to see physically. How many know it takes a few minutes to get from physical to the spiritual? God, would you show me what's happening around me? Would you show me the needs of the people? Uh, help me to see more of what I'm looking for. When I got my head in my phone, I'm not looking for anything. But when I get my head up, I'm saying, God, show me more of what I'm looking for. I want to see you at work and the people and the scenarios around me. 
So you'll never know when God will help you to see something differently. The people you normally pass by every day and, and the people you work with every day and the people that you serve you at the grocery store or at the restaurant, the people that you ride the school bus with or sit beside in class, you never know when will be the day when God will show you something different that he wants to do in the life of that person, a word of encouragement, a, a word of prayer. We need to stop, we need to look, and then we need to be listening. Listening for the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are new and, and you're kind of like, well, I hear you talking about hearing from God, but I don't really know what that looks like. It's kind of like, oh, like the halo, all that, you know. No, often it's just a, a nudge, it's an idea. Most often when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, it sounds like me. It's because it's the Spirit of God living in me. And it's more like the knower. My, my pastor, my mentor always talked about the knower. You just, you just know in your knower, you know, that this is God. And sometimes it takes practice to exercise it. Sometimes you're kind of like, I don't know if this is me or God. I'm not sure. But I'm going to take a faith step and say, I, this could be God. I'm not 100%, but I'm just going to go down the limb here. And, and you learn to hear the voice of God and to operate in cooperation with God. You're listening in your knower. And so Peter and John are on their way to, uh, to the temple to pray and they get this prompt in their heart not to go by like they always do. Not to, and they stop and they look at this man intently. And they're praying and they're saying, God, what would you have me to do or to say? And they see this man asking them for charity. But in this moment, they see more of what they're wanting to see, more of what they're looking for. And they see in this man not just a need for charity, but a man who needs a transforming power of Jesus Christ, a work in his life. Stop, look, listen, and then give what you have. Peter says, look at us. Look at us. You know, some of the people that God leads us to minister to might be strangers, but often it's the people that are already in our spheres. And to be honest with you, they're already looking at you. They're already watching your life to see if your walk matches up with your talk. They're already watching your life and kind of going, what is this peace in your life when things don't seem peaceful? What is this joy that you have when circumstances aren't joyful? What is going on in your life? Is there any difference between how you used to be and how you are now? Has the power of God transformed you in any way? The best testimony of the transforming power of Jesus is a transformed life in someone you used to know. So the people are already looking at us. The old fears and insecurities and dependencies have been exchanged for this new life and faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And I love this. Instead of making excuses for what they don't have, right? We do that all the time. We think, well, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the leadership skill that so-and-so has. I don't have whatever it is. So they don't make excuses for what they don't have. What they do, they say, silver and gold we don't have but I want to talk to you about what I do have. There's an old saying that little is much when God is in it. How many know that God is in the business of expanding nothing into something? I love the whole earth, the whole universe he created from nothing. It says that one day Jesus was teaching and he wanted to feed the friends. Following Jesus is all about eating together, right? And they had nothing but like fish sticks, happy meal, 
And Jesus took it and he blessed it and multiplied and made something out of it to feed the multitude. We often think that we're limited by our flaws or our imperfections or our weaknesses, but Jesus is simply saying, give me something to work with and I'll multiply it. I'll take it and bless it. Don't make excuses for what you don't think you have. Instead, point to what you do have. What could Jesus do for this man? If he's done it in my life, he could do it for him. He said, I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus and Nazarene, get up and walk. Then it says, Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. Here's what we need to know. It's the power of Jesus that healed the man. But it was Peter's hand that lifted him up. This is how we partner with God. It was the power of Jesus that healed the man, but it was Peter's hand that lifted him up. See, what this tells me is that Jesus is asking you and me today, can you lend me a hand? Can you lend me a hand? If Jesus were here in this place and he said, can you lend me a hand? How many know none of us would say no? Right? We say, okay, Jesus, whatever it is, uh, let, me, let me lend you a hand. But, but the reason Jesus says, lend me a hand, isn't because he needs our help. It's because he wants to invite us into the joy of the process. How many know that it's often easier to do it yourself? Parents, if you have children, grandparents, when you have children, it's often easier for you to do it yourself. Right? But you want to invite your children, you want to invite your grandchildren into the process so that they can learn and be part of that. And so you invite them in and that's what Jesus does for you and for me. He says, will you lend me a hand? Not because I need you, but because I want you to learn and be part of the joy of this process of building the kingdom. Jesus said, I will build my church. But he said, you go and make disciples. So I'm going to do it. It's my power, but I want you to be the hand that reaches out and lifts people up. Notice when the miracle happened. It's not when Peter said, rise up and walk. It says he reached out his hand, and as he lifted him up, the miracle happened. The man's uh, ankles and feet were healed. Here's what I think. I can't solve the issues of this world. As a church, we can't solve the issues of this world. But what I do know is that we can be the hand of Jesus lifting people up wherever we find them. That we can be the hand of Jesus that lends a hand to people in their hurts and lifts them up and points them to Jesus. Peter didn't heal anybody. It was the power of Jesus that healed them, but it was the hand of Peter that lifted him up. We are the hand to our city lifting them up. We're the hand to our region, lifting them up. Acts 3, 7 says, as he did this, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened, and he jumped up. He stood on his feet and began praising God. He walking and leaping and praising God. He went into the temple with them, and all the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. And when they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Everyone had walked by this man dozens of times before. They all knew who he was and yet in this moment they were understandably shocked and they were looking to Peter as though he had done something miraculous. And Peter seizes this opportunity not just to lift up the man but to point him to Jesus Peter saw this opportunity, he addressed the crowd, people of Israel, 
Why is it so surprising about this? Why stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it's the power of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant, Jesus, by doing this. Every miracle, this is the, the goal, to bring glory to Jesus. This is the same Jesus who you handed over and rejected before Pilate. Despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you now know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Peter said, what are you so surprised about? This is what Jesus said was going to happen. And when we see things through the lens of Christ, we see differently. We see the supernatural possibilities and potential of what God wants to do. We see more of what we're looking for. What if Peter and John had just kept walking by that day? What if they had felt that kind of sense in their knower that God might want to do something, but they were like, ah, oh, we don't really have what it takes, and they had kept going. They hadn't stopped to look or to listen. I want to encourage you today that maybe you are timid or scared or unsure of what it means to partner with God, but take that first small step. Maybe you have someone in your life who is really good at it, and you say, well, can I do it with you? Can you come alongside the journey with me? Can you help me figure out how to do this? Maybe for you, you're in these life-shared groups. We're all in these life groups this week. And, and if you haven't been a part of it, you can still come Tuesday night at 6.30. Uh, downstairs, you have our big group life group. We have one that you could join this week uh, to talk about how do we find the courage and boldness to share what Jesus has done in our lives. Here's what I want as we return to routine and schedule this fall. It's not just to fall into routine and schedule. Not to fall into ruts of just thinking what always has been is what will always will be. I want to see more of what we're looking for. Looking for life change. Looking for opportunities to be the hand of Jesus. Looking to see the people around us, not just in the crowd, but to see individuals. And say, Jesus, what do you want to do today? In this mundane and ordinary moment that might be transformative to someone's life. Stop, look, listen, and give what we how many want to see heaven invade our city? Heaven transform our city and transform our region. Jesus says, I'm going to do it through my church. As you go, as you gather today and you're filled up and excited about what God's doing in your life, I'm going to scatter you throughout the week. You're going to take the presence of God wherever you go. How many would say, if Jesus asked you, can you lend me a hand? You'd be like, sure. At some point this week, Jesus is going to ask you, will you lend me a hand? We want to have our eyes up. We're going to be stopping to look and to listen and say, Jesus, where can I be your hand extended this week? Maybe you're here today. And maybe right now in this moment, you're like, wow, this is new to me. Maybe you've been on a journey. You've been thinking about Jesus or you've been kind of trying to figure out what church is about. And, and today you would just simply say, you know what, Pastor Jer, uh, today's my day. Today's my day, but I want to start my first day with Jesus. Anyone in this place, you go, today's my day. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to start today to follow Jesus. Anyone want to give you that opportunity in this place today? Yeah, amen. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Today is a great day. 
Well, maybe you're still thinking about it, but the person that brought you or sitting beside you would love to talk to you more about that. In just a moment, the prayer team's gonna come. Actually, they're gonna come right now. And we just talked about this story about how Jesus transformed someone's life in a spiritual sense, but he also did a physical sense. We know that God does heal today, and maybe you're here and you say, I need a touch of healing in my life. I'm gonna invite you after the service to come forward, and our friends will be here. They would love to pray for you, healing or whatever it is that you need today. But let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for this opportunity. Not that you need us, you want us to have the joy and privilege of partnering with you to see what you're doing in the lives of the people around us. I pray today that we would see more of what we're looking for, that we'd see more opportunities to take a, a faith step and to point people to you this week. I pray that we would be first transformed to see our lives and our mission in life differently and that we would see the people around us differently. Give us opportunity to stop, look, listen, to give people what has actually been given to us by you this week. This love and grace of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Man, God bless you, church. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.